it's my privilege to go to open God's word with you this morning. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we find ourselves. Uh, and if you are a guest with us, it's a regular practice to make our way through one book of the Bible at a time. And so we've been going through the gospel of Matthew for a while now, a sermon that, series that we've entitled King and Kingdom. And uh, thus far, uh, we've seen Jesus casting a vision for the kingdom in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7, where he first talks about what's called the Beatitudes. It's the characteristics of the people of God. Uh, but it's a, sort of an upside-down kingdom that we wouldn't expect that Jesus is calling us to, where he says, blessed or flourishing are those who are poor in spirit, who are coming before the Lord needy. Uh, blessed or flourishing are those who mourn who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who seek to make peace with those who are enemies. And, uh, and Jesus then goes on, he says, um, when people of God are, are demonstrating these characteristics of this kingdom together, they're like a city set on a hill. And they become um, this sort of picture of life and light and the love to a lost, dying world where people then become attracted to that kingdom. And ultimately, they are attracted to the king of the kingdom who lives out these attributes perfectly. And so Jesus moves then in the Sermon on the Mount from talking about the characteristics of the kingdom to then the laws of the kingdom. And he introduces this next section by saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the word fulfill actually is applied in a couple of different ways. So one is Jesus wants to, in essence, kind of fill out the law for us. And so if say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's saying, you know, there's certain times where the law has been misapplied. It's been misinterpreted. Let me fill it out for you. Let me explain it to you more uh, so that you can understand how to obey it. But then alongside of that, he says, hey, and unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he says, if you want to really fulfill this law, I want you to understand that it's not just about outward obedience. It is about the heart. Uh, he wants to fill out the law by saying your heart needs to change. And I'm after your heart internally matching your obedience externally to this law. And so I'm not sure about for you, but for me, like as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I fall so far short. And that actually is a means by which Jesus then says, let me tell you one more thing about how uh, I came to fulfill this law. I came to obey where you couldn't. I came to measure up where you fall short. And I came not only to be that perfect representative to take your place by obeying the law perfectly, but I also came to die in your place, to take the punishment for the sin that you have committed against me by not obeying my law the way that I call. So Jesus kind of fleshes out this law. And the first um, four commands um, are do not sort of commands. So don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Um, don't uh, commit, you know, divorce just for any reason whatsoever. And, uh, and don't um, lie in a way that you're making an oath and then you don't keep it. Instead, speak my truth. But it's more focused on do nots. But here Jesus moves on these last two laws by now saying, but this is what you are called to do. And both these laws we're going to look at this morning, I would just summarize by saying that they are two laws of love. Um, Jesus is saying, hey, I want your heart to be a heart of love for this broken, dying, sinful world. It's sort of the apex of his sermon because it highlights the fact that 
of all the things that Jesus wants to understand about the kingdom of God, he wants us to understand that it's a kingdom of love. And so with that introduction, why don't we go ahead and stand and read this section of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Let's listen to God's word together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray. Oh God, we just want to ask um, this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us a heart that not only understands these laws of love, but that would seek to apply these laws to our lives. And not only that, but that we would also see, Jesus, that you are the perfect embodiment of this law of love. And that we would see your love for us and for this lost, dying world. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys take your seats. And uh, as you do, today's sermon is entitled The Law of Love. And uh, it's been a little bit of a running joke recently between Pastor Paul and me. I've been making fun of him about his alliteration. But the reality is uh, I, I have a lot of alliteration this morning as well. And hopefully he'll be proud of me when he returns next Sunday. So here's your three points. First, love lays down your rights. Second, love lifts up your enemies. And third, love looks up to your God. You pretty good? Yeah? All right. Lays down your rights, lifts up your enemies, looks up to your God. First, love lays down your rights. We've already seen throughout chapter 5 so far where, where Jesus kind of begins by pointing out a particular law. Um, and then he challenges them to look at it a different and a fuller perspective. And he does it here again. He quotes an Old Testament law that's probably familiar to us. He starts out and he says, if you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But it's actually helpful for us to look at the fuller context of this law. It's actually mentioned three different times in the Old Testament. We're going to look at it in the longest section in Leviticus, a fun book. Leviticus chapter 24. Now let's look at this together. It says, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Uh, this principle is in the Latin called lex talionis. It means the law of retaliation. And in for our like, modern ears, this law would appear very gruesome. We actually need to understand sort of the context that it was written in and actually understand what this law really Meant. So as we know, it's human nature. When somebody does something to you, you want to hurt them back. You know, a brother flicks you in the ear. You're like, well, fine. I'm going to punch you in the face. I don't know. At least that doesn't happen in our house ever. Um, but 
you know the idea, right? Or maybe somebody speaks ill of you and then you want to ramp it up and maybe talk ill of them and post it on the internet. It's just kind of this human nature that we amp up the conflict. Well, imagine that happening in the, civil, in the, in the, in the ancient society that Israel was, was living in. It was a very tribal society. So you imagine somebody gets hurt intentionally or unintentionally, and they're like, all right, well, I'm going to get you back as someone to get it. I'm going give, to give it to you worse. Oh, well, you did that to me. Well, I'm going to do this to your family. Oh, you did this to my family. Well, I'm going to do this to your clan. Do this to my clan. Well, I'm going to do this to your tribe. And it turns out into an all-out war. And we still even see some of this in certain places today. Well, in God's wisdom, the law of retaliation sought to limit this escalation. It actually was a law of mercy more than a law of retribution. And alongside of that, this didn't mean that every time someone uh, lost an eye, that they were immediately to take out the eye of someone else. It was very simply to limit the punishment, to limit the excessive payback. And one other thing to note here is that this law wasn't given into the hands of the individuals to apply. It was actually entrusted to judges. So Moses was the first judge, and then he appointed other judges throughout the tribes to say, hey, when someone brings before you a case, you're determined fault, and then you're to determine what punishment fits the crime. What if this person did it accidentally? What if this person now is repentant? The judge had a liberty to determine what was the appropriate punishment to enforce. And we know that that's what happens today as well. Well, fast forward 1,500 years to the time of Jesus, and this law of retaliation was applied very differently. The scribes and the Pharisees, they actually taught that it was not just your right, but it was your duty as a victim to insist upon getting even. And if you couldn't get justice from the judge, you were to take that law into your own hands. You were to use this law to your advantage. You were to punish others. You were to retaliate. You were to assert your rights to get whatever you could. I hate to say this, but I think it sounds kind of familiar to our day and age here. You know, American society, we were founded on the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's a really good thing. Um, Especially when we're standing up for the rights of those who are oppressed or who are vulnerable or who are marginalized. But as we know, oftentimes this American way of standing up for our rights becomes something in which everything is our right. Am I right? And uh, when we feel that someone is sort of infringing on these rights, we fight back, we speak up, we refuse to stand idly by. I want my rights and I want it now. What happens when everyone's seeking to establish their own rights? It leads to conflict. It leads to chaos. It leads to nothing good. There's a 60-second ad that ran during the Super Bowl, and um, it flashed all these black and white scenes, these pictures of violence and conflict and social disorder, people just sticking their feet or their face finger into the other person's face. There we go. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it just stops, and it's sort of this stark, whoa, what's going on? And then it has these words, Jesus loved the people that we hate. That's a part of the Key Gets Us campaign, and it pointed people to a different way that Jesus was offering. That commercial was to sort of expose the hearts of the people. And Jesus, in many ways, is trying to do that 
right here in this passage of scripture as well to point them to a better way. And he says, instead of an eye for an eye, look what he says, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, at first glance, this seems like Jesus is contradicting this law of retaliation. But in reality, he's actually revealing the true heart of this command. He's, not, he's telling you, don't demand retaliation. Uh, instead, I want you to, I want to limit it. I want, I want to de-escalate rather than escalate the conflict. Jesus says, don't get hung up on focusing on your rights, but lay them down in love for one another. And then he gives these four sort of common examples that would have happened in Jewish society at that time. And we're just going to kind of walk through these really quickly. So first, um, we're kind of familiar, at least the phrase, turn the other cheek. We may not necessarily understand what that means. So imagine, he says, um, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other one also. I'm right-handed. I'm standing in front of somebody. And I slap them on the cheek. Which cheek am I slapping? I'm slapping them on the left cheek. Okay? What does it take for me to slap them on the right cheek? I have to take my hand and go this way. In Jewish society at that time, the backhanded slap wasn't a means of attacking someone physically as much as it was attacking their character. It was insulting them. It was putting them down. It was unjustly insulting them a lot of times. And Jesus is saying when that happens, you're not to retaliate. You're to turn the other cheek. You don't worry about getting the last word. You overcome evil with good. The default setting of your heart is not to take vengeance, but to be set on love. In essence, Jesus says, love absorbs the blow. You guys know what that's like, right? Whenever you're in a conflict and then you or the other person walks away, it, it de-escalates that conflict. That's what Jesus is calling his people to. Second example it relates to sort of a, a legal dispute. And someone is suing another person and they take their tunic or their shirt, it's kind of what that is, it's an undergarment, um, and Jesus says, well, if they take your tunic, you're to give to them your cloak as well. And I understand what that means. Um, the tunic was just kind of a light garment. It wasn't that vital to the Jew. But the cloak was this thick, woven outer garment. It was a long cape or kind of a poncho-like robe. And people would wear it as a garment during the day, and they actually would sleep with it as a, as a blanket at night to protect them from the elements. And most Jews only had one cloak. And it was such an important uh, uh, item that the law actually forbade anyone from taking it. So here, if a Jew owed you money, you could ask to hold their tunic as a pledge, but you couldn't ask for their cloak. Again, Jesus says, don't insist on your rights, but be willing to do whatever it takes to make it right with the other person. In other words, if somebody's taking taken you to court and they're trying to sue you, do whatever it takes to reconcile with your brother or sister. Love lays down your rights to be in a right relationship. It sacrifices, if necessary, for the sake of making peace. Jesus goes on, a third example. Uh, that's where we get the phrase, go the extra mile. So again, we probably don't understand the, the backdrop behind it. In Jesus' time, of course, Israel was um, occupied by Rome. And by Roman law, a Roman soldier could force any non-citizen 
to walk what was called the Roman mile. It was actually, they would count it out a thousand paces. And alongside of that, they were to carry the soldier's pack of supplies for that mile. So in essence, at any point in time, a Jew might be standing on on the road, and then all of a sudden they get this poke in their side from a spear from a Roman soldier. And they knew at that point in time they had to drop everything, turn to the Roman soldier and say, yes, I will carry your stuff for this mile. Obviously, this wasn't um, illegal, but it was certainly oppressive to do this. And Jesus says, if a Roman soldier forces you to go one mile, go with him too. As citizens of my kingdom and, and not the Roman kingdom, don't do the bare minimum, but lay down your rights and joyfully serve, even if it's unfair. See beyond their See beyond your rights to that person in front of you. And they, they desperately need the love of Christ. And so Jesus says, love goes the extra mile. Do that for the sake of your Roman soldier. Last but not least, Jesus says to give generously to the one in need and to loan to those who ask instead of holding on to what we feel like we deserve, what we've earned, right? Jesus says instead, open your hands. Be open-handed rather than closed-fisted with your possessions, especially towards those who are in need of help. Even though you have the right to what you've earned, Jesus says, love gives it away. All these examples, Jesus is telling us, don't insist on your rights, but, but lay them down in love. Inconvenience yourself for the sake of others. Don't retaliate or, or seek to get what you deserve, but look instead for ways to serve and honor and love the people who don't deserve it. I'm sure um, as you're kind of thinking through these examples from 2,000 years ago, you can bring it to present day, Right? You can imagine yourself in a particular situation and somebody insults you and, boy, you were so tempted to respond back. But love instead responds with kind words or simply walks away. Maybe your waitress messed up the order or maybe she's just giving you horrible service and you leave an even better tip than you would normally. Maybe your spouse or your child is just nagging you. What do you do? You respond to them as if they asked humbly from you for whatever it is that they're asking for. Maybe your boss is just heavy-handed and overbearing. And instead of complaining and arguing, instead you work hard with a good attitude as unto the Lord. Examples are endless. And so let me just basically ask you this. What is your posture towards your rights? Are you always insisting upon them? Or are you laying them down for the sake of extending love to those around you? Jesus says, if you want to follow after me, if you want to obey my law of love, lay your rights down. Now, one thing I want to make mention, I think this is really important, one caveat to this is Jesus is not saying that we should never insist on our rights or the rights of others. Uh, There are times when, and elsewhere in the Gospels, where Jesus and, and recalls us to confront evil, particularly among those um, who are oppressed and marginalized, and especially when this evil is egregious. We are to face it head on. We're to bring it before the course. We're to seek justice where we can for those who have been victimized. 
If you notice, most of these examples that Jesus is offering are fairly minor offenses in the grand scheme of things. But when there is a major offense, I'm, I'm grateful that we live in a society where we can bring these things before a judge. And we can seek to protect the vulnerable and confront the evildoer, and if necessary, even change laws on their behalf. In fact, I'm going to share an example um, that expresses kind of this point of confronting evil in my next point. But Jesus' main point here as citizens of his kingdom is that our posture towards those who do evil against us is to respond in love, to make peace rather than escalate the conflict, to lay down our rights for the sake of loving those around us. So how are you doing in that area? Well, if you're not convicted enough, uh, we're going to move on to point number two. Uh, Love not only lays down your rights, but love also lifts up your enemies. As Jesus is teaching, he's probably anticipating the the Jews and their thoughts about what he's just said. Uh, And even though these are hard words from Jesus, they're probably not unfamiliar to them. They're not completely foreign to them. Uh, and, so Jesus, and so the people are like, okay, Jesus, I got it. I got it. Yeah, I'm supposed to, uh, I'm supposed to um, you know, love my neighbor. Yeah, when they're not nice to me, I'm still supposed to love them. I got it. I'm not supposed to insist on my rights when my fellow Jew is, you know, hurting or, 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 or suing me or begging from me. I need to, you know, kind of honor them. And yeah, I know I need to at least be respectful to my Roman authorities, not complain. I'm too good to go conflict. I got it. But Jesus, in essence, says, no, you still don't get it. And he moves on to this second law, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, love your neighbor is definitely a biblical teaching. But this other part of hating your enemy, that is not in Scripture at all. In fact, let's look at another passage in Leviticus to kind of see what, where this comes from. Leviticus uh, chapter 19. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. By the way, see that? Not bear a grudge. Lex talionis kind of there. But instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it seems here that the people had twisted the scriptures to say what it hadn't said. Oh, yeah, I I know who my neighbor is. That's my fellow Jew. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it was intended. See, the Jews actually felt like it was their patriotic uh, uh, duty to hate all outsiders. If you were a Samaritan, you're half Jew, half Gentile hate you. If you're a full Gentile, absolutely hate you. You're a Roman, I for sure am going to hate you. And alongside of that, the outcasts, like the lepers and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, be done. I'm going to be done with you. Jesus says, no, you've got it all wrong. You're not to hate your enemies. You're not even just to tolerate them. You are to love them. You are to lift them up when they tear you down. In essence, Jesus says, um, I don't have two commands, uh, one that you're supposed to love your neighbor, another you're supposed to love your enemy. No, I've got one command. Love your neighbor, and I mean even if he or she is an enemy. 
would have been startling for the Jews to be hearing this. It would have been completely foreign to them. And I'm sure, I just want to, I'm sure for you even like right now, you might be having a particular person who kind of flashes on your mind's eye for who that enemy might be, or maybe even a group of people. A person who has hurt you, who has persecuted you, who has done all kinds of evil against you. And Jesus is saying, love them. Guys, I, I, I don't know about for you, but for me, just thoroughly convicted and just going, how? How, how can I do this? Well, Jesus is going to give us the how um, in terms of explaining how to love our enemies, but even more so, I think he's going to give us the power to love them as we're going to look here at these last two sections. So love lifts your enemies. Jesus gives us three sort of um, ways, not just to respond in love, but to kind of initiate love. And he first starts out with the actual word, love. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. If you were to flip over to the Gospel of Luke, a similar sermon called the Sermon on the Plain. There Jesus says to do good to those who hate you. So Jesus is saying um, take acts of goodness, acts of love towards your enemies. That word good is kalos. Um, it's not just kind of superficial goodness. It is an inherent goodness. It's a, it's a deep goodness. It also can be translated beautiful. And so Jesus is, has his mind like you are to beautifully display goodness and love to your enemy. And ultimately, what, is ha what has lasting goodness is the good news of the gospel. So the ultimate aim here is as you're showing them good acts of love, you're pointing them to the God of love. You find every means possible to show them love, to overcome evil with good. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance, right? That's what Jesus has in mind here. Um, I was thinking about this, about somebody who embodies this, and there was a, a person who immediately came to mind. Her name was Emily. My first year, or excuse me, her first year of college, I think we we're two years apart. Um, so I was a junior when she was a freshman. We both went to the same school uh, called Samford. And the next year she transferred to FSU. And then I ended up coming here two years later for my grad school, and I reconnected with Emily. And, uh, and in connecting with her, she started talking about her summer and what she sought to do to fulfill this passage of scripture. And, uh, and she had led 13 people to the Lord that summer. And I'm like, how? How did you do that? And she said, you know, I actually looked for the one that was the worst enemy of all. She, I realized that the one who hates the most is the one who needs my love the most. And it's actually the one who probably doesn't know the love of God at all. They've never experienced it before. And so I actually saw God soften their hearts because I was loving them in a way that was completely foreign to them. And as I just initiated good acts of kindness towards them, one by one, they came to faith in Christ. And I was like, Emily, that's, that's amazing. She said, yeah, I, I really begun to, I began to understood how much God loves my enemies and I was called to do the same. Now you... Um, Maybe struggling with that when you have that picture in your mind's eye of who that enemy is. And Jesus has a path for you too, though. He says not just to love them, but also to lift up your enemies in prayer. So maybe you're struggling to love someone. And this might be a first good step for you. Before you take steps towards them, 
with acts of kindness or acts of love. You simply bring them to the throne of grace. You ask that God would open their hearts to see the truth of the gospel, that you pray for their heart, that it would change. And not only that, but that you begin to pray for your own heart as well, that God would change your heart towards them. What did Jesus say when he prayed to his father on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, that God would give you a a softened heart towards your enemies, just to lift them up, to bring them before the throne of grace and just to simply leave them there and say, God, do whatever you want. I'm entrusting them to you. And then before you know it, your heart begins to soften towards them. You know, evangelism is just as much about speaking to God as it is speaking to your enemy. Praying that God would move in their hearts as he has in yours as well. So lift up your enemies in love. Lift up your enemies in prayer. And last but not least, lift up your enemies in blessing. Uh, Look down here at verse 47. It says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now that word for greeting can also be um, translated blessing. It's typically a word that's used by Jews, although it could sometimes be used by Gentiles as well. This word for blessing is the word shalom. And it goes beyond just a simple hello sort of greeting. This vision for shalom is a blessing sort of vision. In other words, when you were to speak shalom to another person as they pass by, you longed for them to experience wholeness where there's brokenness. You longed for them to experience peace and joy where there's sadness and downcast feelings. You wish good upon them. You are praying that God's shalom would come upon them the way that it has come upon you. You long for them to be made whole in a way that they never have been before. Jesus says how you act, you're to act in love. How you pray, you're to pray in love. How you speak, you're to speak in love. Lifting up your enemies even when they bring you down. Guys, I'm sure sure right for you, but this is hard when we hear just the weight of the law kind of falling down on us, this law of love. And so um, one of the things that I find to be helpful is to to sort of... um, set my gaze on a story that sort of captures this in essence. And so I want to share with you a couple stories this morning. Uh, The first is a story um, by a woman named Rachel Den Hollander. Uh, You may have heard of her. became really uh, famous in 2018 uh, where she was sexually assaulted multiple times by a USA gymnastics physician known as Larry Nasser. And in 2018, she broke through the wall of sort of official denial by the U.S. Gymnastics Association, and she was the first woman to publicly accuse Dr. Nasser. And it actually led eventually to hundreds of women coming forward with their own stories of abuse and assault. Now, Rachel was a Christian, and she knew that God called for her to advocate for those vulnerable women, as I talked about earlier, right? To, To stand up for rights, to confront evil, Head on, And so on the witness stand, she shared the crushing details of her assault, and she called for justice to be done. Lex talionis, right? That law of retribution. But she went further than that. In a powerful scene at the end of her testimony, Rachel looked straight at Dr. Nasser, and she said these words, I pray you receive your just sentence, but I also pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you 
as well. You see, Rachel knew that God is a God of justice, that he judges evil, and we're called to seek justice where we can, imperfectly as it may be on this side of heaven. But at the same time, God is a God of mercy and love. And Rachel knew that she was called to love her enemies, to pray for and even to forgive Dr. Nasser, And even to long that he would experience the life-transforming grace and love of God the way that she had. And so uh, she actually writes in her biography by saying, And by confronting him in his sin, it was the best chance of him seeing his need for the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God the way that I had. It's a powerful scene of gospel love, a longing for her enemy to actually become her brother in Christ. Guys, I don't want you to think that it just happened immediately for her. Um, Forgiveness is a process. Love takes time to love your enemies in that way. And she talks openly about that. She prayed before she took any sort of steps of action And alongside of that, though, God began to soften her heart. Now, how did he soften her heart? I think she probably was encouraged by this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at now. When we look down and we kind of feel down like, oh, my goodness, I can never love that way. We just feel so broken about our own sin and the hatred that we have in our hearts. God says, look up. Look up to your God. And see me and my love for you. Point number three, love looks up to your God. Both Leviticus passages, by the way, um, these laws that we looked at, they end with this phrase, I am the Lord your God. In essence, God is saying, here's my law and it's my heart. The law reflects my heart for you. And Jesus does the same thing here. He says, This law of love is reflecting the God of love. Verse 45, he says, When you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he says, So that you may be sons, or you could say sons and daughters, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And that doesn't mean that you love so that you can become a child of God. It means you love and so prove that you really are a child of God. That you are loving more and more like your father who blesses all, just and unjust, evil and good. He lavishes grace upon every person on this earth. Show you are a child of God by acting like your heavenly father. Look up to your father and see his great love for you and for all those around you. And then alongside of that, Jesus concludes this section by saying, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It says, God's love is perfect. It says, You are to aim to be like Him, displaying that perfect love. Now, I'm sure as the people are hearing this phrase, and I'm hearing it, and you're hearing it this morning, you're like, That is not possible. And I think that's the point. Jesus, while he's calling us to obey the law, he also recognized that we are not going to obey the law the way that we are called to. That there must be someone to come to be the perfect fulfillment of this love. 
And I wonder if Jesus, as he's saying these words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's then saying, and I'm coming to be that perfect love for you. Where you don't measure up, I will measure up. If he's looking forward almost to the cross that will come. I wonder if he has in mind, I'm going to provide one day the ultimate example of the father's love. I will be the son of God. The way that I'm calling you to be children of God. See, right now, you might see yourself as the good guys, Jews. No, you're an enemy too. One day you're going to reject me. You're going to abandon me. You're going to rebel against me. You are going to mock me and scorn me and nail me to the cross. And instead of rejecting you, I will love you to the end. See, Jesus wouldn't know what it's like to feel that backhanded slap, to be mocked and spit at and scorned by his enemies and not to open up his mouth. He knew what it was like to lose his tunic and his cloak and to be stripped naked for all to see. He knew what it was like to walk the extra mile when he was poked and prodded by spears by a Roman soldier to carry his cross from the sentence of death all the way to the place of death at Golgotha, some 650 yards away. He knew what it was like to be generous to those in need, to give to those who could not ever pay him back. He knew it was like to give up his rights, his dignity, his reputation, his exalted position with his father. He knew it was like to even give up his relationship with his father, where his father had to turn his face away from Jesus and pour out his wrath upon him for our sin. Jesus ultimately knew what it was like to give up his life for the sake of his enemies so that they could become his friends, his brothers and sisters. So when we get a vision of that love, that love of Christ, when we behold that love, the Spirit of God begins to do something. It begins to change our hearts from the inside out to not only see that love for us, but then to display that love more and more. That's what happened for Rachel. And that's what God is inviting us to experience as well. Do you see Jesus and his love for you? That worst moment where you think you're undeserving of anything good, and that's at that worst moment that God gives his best for you. If that's what was nailing Jesus to the cross, you and I were enemies so that Jesus could take our punishment, stand in the gap, fulfill that law of love perfectly so that we could be seen as righteous and holy and without blemish in God's sight and be welcomed in forever and ever and ever. First John 4 puts it this way, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifested among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The father loved you and me so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you and me. And he sends his spirit into our hearts so we can experience that love and then display that love in a way that is not possible in our flesh. We can't just kind of muster up the strength to love 
We will grit our teeth and we might be able to do it on the outside, but on the inside, our hearts are hard. And Jesus says, that's why I'm sending my spirit as a blessing, as a guarantee to you, to strengthen you and enable you to love more and more the people I've called you to, to love them the way that I love you. I want to close with you a story that sort of captures this beautiful, rugged, sacrificial love. It's a story you might be familiar with. Her name is Corey Tinboom, and she and her family were Christians, and they hid Jews from the Nazis for years before finally being discovered and thrown into a concentration camp where her family experienced awful atrocities too horrible to imagine today, where her father and her mother died. I've been to Auschwitz, and I've seen some of these things, um, but I can't even imagine what she must have experienced. Well, after the war ended, uh, she began speaking to churches and sharing her story. And one day, Miss Tinboom had just finished speaking when she saw a man who actually had stood guard at the concentration camp that she was in. It was the first jailer that Corey had seen since her time in the camp. And I want to read to you kind of at length her experience as she recounts what happened. She said, Suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. It was her sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for the message, Fraulene, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard in there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulene, his hand held out. Will you forgive me? His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. I could not, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him, but give me your, for your forgiveness. For I had to do it. I, I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If I can't forgive my enemies, do I really know the love of Jesus who died and poured out his love for me and for our, his enemies? Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart and I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands together. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. With all my heart, I cried. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, and so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his forgiveness, on his goodness. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. 
And for folks, I don't know where you might find yourself this morning. Maybe you haven't really ever understood the good news of Jesus, that he laid down his life for you. Or maybe you, you have, but, but there's still something that's stuck. Your heart is still hard towards certain people. God, I just encourage you this morning, if you're sensing the Holy Spirit just welling up within your heart, a desire to obey him, can I just encourage you, first and foremost, just behold the love of God for you. Those sins that you're being convicted of, see those sins nailing Jesus to the cross and how his love is what held him there for you. And as you behold the love of God, then just pray, just ask God, would you enable me to display that love of God and to experience the love of God more and more as I actually love my enemies the way that you love me. I'm just asking for the Holy Spirit to do that so that we can be the kingdom of God on earth the way that it is in heaven, that we can live out these kingdom values for all the world to see so they can be welcomed into the family of God the way that we have. Let's pray.